Good morning. It's good to be here. It is good to gather with God's family, whether it's in person or electronically. Um, We are here to answer God's call to worship Him. Before we enter our time of worship, I do have a couple of announcements. No Bible study this evening. In fact, we will wait until after the first of the year to gather back together. Next week at 6 o'clock, we will have a candlelight service uh, here at the church and um, uh, celebrate uh, Christmas uh, together. Um, Are there any other announcements? Once again, I'm astounded at the faithfulness that God shows through the people of this church. And so I'd just like to say thank you to each and every one that helps out in their way around here, whether it's Uh, whatever it is, cleaning, helping out at the food pantry, uh, serving in leadership. Um, God is amazingly faithful through this church. And so I just want to say thank you to everybody for that. So as we begin, hear these words from Isaiah, or excuse me, we were in Isaiah in Sunday school, and we're going to talk about Isaiah a little bit in the sermon as well. But these words are from Luke, Luke chapter 1. The angel had come to Elizabeth and told her about the birth of John. And she came to Zechariah, John's father, to tell him the same thing. And he didn't believe. And so he waited for most of the pregnancy to get his voice back because God muted him for his lack of belief. And after John was born, Zechariah sang this song. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers 
and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for your tenderness, for your sweetness in sending a Savior to bring forgiveness of sins to bring Your mercy. And we thank You for those that You sent to proclaim Him, those who came before to proclaim, like John the Baptist, like his father Zechariah, who proclaimed the mission that John would have to make known the suffering servant of the God Most High. We thank You for this opportunity to gather in this place to worship You, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have worked out salvation for us so that we might enter your presence without fear, knowing that we are atoned for and knowing that our judgment has been placed upon the cross. And so as we gather here today, remind us that you are here with us, that you are, that we are in your presence, lifting our glory to you and finding peace and comfort in you. Lord, we thank you for prayer and we thank you for teaching us to pray in this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please take your hymn book and turn to hymn number 148. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. When we are confronted with God's presence, when we are confronted with the fact that the transcendent God, the holy God of creation became God with us, we should be moved to a reverent silence. So let us stand and sing hymn number 148, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence.
specific doctrine that we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation. God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, took on flesh and dwelt among us. As we'll see in a little while, that is the central doctrine of the life of Christ. It is the central doctrine of our salvation. And oftentimes at this time of the year, we take it for granted as we rush around to make Christmas perfect with the right tree, the right gifts, the right attitude, the right food, the right family gathering. We take for granted the incarnation. So let us take a few moments to consider and to confess where we have failed our Savior by forgetting the glory of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We are told in John's letter to the church that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Hebrews. It is Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read verses 5 through 18 as uh, the author of the book of Hebrews is laying out his case that Jesus is greater than the angels. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And he says again, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who are who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers, the flowers fade, 
But thanks be to God that the word of God stands forever. Now is the time in our service where we contemplate our worship of God through the giving of the tithes and offerings. God has been faithful to this church through your faithfulness in giving of tithes and offerings. And so we thank God for that. God and Father above, we do lift our praise and honor and worship to you. And we do that through praying, through the reading and hearing the teaching of Scripture, through singing and through giving of the tithes and offerings. And so we ask that you be honored and glorified by all of our worship and that you take these tithes and offerings that are given and use them so that your name might be proclaimed and the light of your salvation might shine from this church into the darkness of our community, into the darkness of our workplaces, into the darkness at times of our families. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing and take your hymn book and turn to hymn number 171, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The last line of the first verse is one of my favorite lines in hymnody. And it is the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Our ultimate fear is judgment from God. And our ultimate hope is salvation from that judgment. And they met there in that cradle in Bethlehem. So let us remain standing and sing hymn number 171, 
O little town of Bethlehem. Please be seated. We are privileged as the people of God to have his word and also to have his word, the truth of his word, summarized for us in creeds and confessions. And the earliest creed of the church is the Apostles' Creed. And we proclaim that today. Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, as we go to the Lord in prayer today, we do have a couple praises. We say congratulations to Emily Vance. She graduated from college yesterday, and and so we pray for her to, to find work, so uh, beyond substitute work. So, um, uh, But we do um, praise God for being faithful to you throughout your college journey. We also praise God for Hannah. She was released um, 
from the doctor under care for her broken arm, so we praise God for that. And we also lift up Avery as she is doing well. She chipped a tooth this week, um, but seems to be doing well even from that, so continue to pray for for her. Uh, we do lift up um, the, the family of uh, Pat Level. He passed away this week. Um, and uh, continue to lift up the family and friends of Michael Dodd. Did have an update on Mandy Vance. She is Her blood work is doing better, so the chemo is being effective, but continue to pray for her as it is very difficult on her as well. Um, we prayed for a friend of Emily's named Natalie Wade. Um, please continue to lift her up in prayer as uh, she continues her cancer treatments and... Um, uh, we just pray that that goes well. Um, are there any other prayer requests or updates? I'd like to ask for prayer for one of my co-workers, David Whitehead. Okay. He's in the hospital in the back of the COVID-19. Okay. It does remind me of, uh, we will pray for David, uh, reminds me of Dee Brown as well. She is off the ventilator, but she still has a long way to go. In her recovery, and that is um, Ann Robinson's mom. So please keep her in your prayers also. Anything else? All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father above, as we do consider the glory of the Incarnation, our hearts are filled with thankfulness as we Think of the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And we are led to worship the triune God. We are led to worship the second person of the Trinity as as part of His work of securing our salvation was taking on that flesh and dwelling among us. And Lord, we are amazed and astounded at that. And it helps us as well as we deal with the difficulties of living in a world that desperately needs redemption. A world that is groaning in anxious anticipation of the final redemption. The creation that is groaning in anticipation of the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we live in that world, trying to navigate through the groaning, through the difficulties, through the pain, through the sorrows, we are reminded that the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us and navigated through those sorrows, navigated through the temptations that we are tempted with, and yet He navigated them without sin so that we might be justified so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be set apart as holy before God and work out that holiness with fear and trembling, so that we might be innocent and righteous before the judge of this world in light of our sin. As Martin Luther said, we are at once and the same time sin, sinful, and justified. Lord, what a glorious work that was to secure our salvation by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. But we were reminded as well that not only did He deal with the law, not only did He deal with righteousness, but He dealt with the groaning creation in much the same way that we do. And so, Lord, we lift up praise to You for the prayers that You have answered. We praise You that Emily has finished her college and is now graduated. And we lift her up and continue to pray for her as she enters her career, as she seeks a position teaching to honor and glorify You in the school systems. We thank You that Hannah is released from the doctor's care with her broken arm. We thank You that You have knit together her bones and created her in such a way, created each of us in such a way that we heal as part of the normal process. 
We thank you as well for a quick, uh, albeit temporary fix for Avery's tooth. And we ask that as she grows, that you uh, protect that tooth and um, provide means in the future for her to have a, a more permanent solution to that. And Lord, we know that you wept with the darkness and the difficulties of this world. You wept over the loss of friends. We think of the time when you traveled to Bethany, hearing the call to come and to heal Lazarus, getting there knowing that he had passed, and yet you wept anyway. And so, Lord, as we remember those who are no longer with us, we are comforted by the fact that you wept in grief. So we think of the Level family, we think of the Dodd family, as they are grieving loved ones at this time. We know as well that you lived in a world where illness and sickness reigned or seemed to reign. And you brought healing to that. So we ask for prayer for Mandy and for healing for her. We ask for David, Weichel, and ask that you bring him healing as well. We pray for Natalie and ask that you bring healing and comfort to her family with her prognosis. And we pray for Dee Brown and her family and ask that you continue to be to bring healing to Dee and to ultimately restore her to her family according to your will and according to your glory do we ask for healing in all of these areas. Lord, we, we ask for your comfort for our community right now with our first responders and the, the school up in Frankfurt and the community in Williamsburg after this horrendous fire that happened up there and just the horrors that went on prior to that fire, or at least that we think went on. So Lord, bring comfort to our community. Bring comfort to the families of those children who passed away. And remind us that you wept over the horrors of a broken world. But what moved you to tears as well was the thought of the rejection of the second person of the Trinity and his free offer of salvation. And so we lift up those who do not know you today. We lift up those who have heard your gospel message proclaimed and yet have rejected it. We think of friends and family members that we all have who are still living in slavery to sin and to the evil one. And we ask that you give them the spirit in a way that shines the light of your gospel into the darkness of their lives. For you wept over Jerusalem as you were preparing to enter it because they were going to reject the gospel message. And so, Lord, wipe away the tears of our loved ones not knowing you. Wipe away the fears of our friends spending an eternity in judgment by changing their heart and helping them to see their need for a Savior, their need for the Word who took on flesh and dwelt among us, to stand between them and your judgment so that they might know you and might fellowship with us both here in this church and forever in your presence. Lord, we love you. And we know that we are only able to say that because you first loved us. And you showed us that love by dying for us while we were still sinners. Lord, help us to proclaim that love this Christmas season and throughout the year and change the hearts of the people in this world, in our families, in our friendships that don't know you. And use us if you see fit to proclaim that message of Christ incarnate. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John today and next week. We are going to take a couple weeks 
and look at uh, the incarnation um, of the second person of the Trinity, that idea that John talks about in our passage today, that the Word became flesh or took on flesh and made His dwelling among us. I, uh, I don't typically do Advent series, or at least I haven't in quite a while. Um, one Sabbath, one Sunday is the same as any other Sunday, but I felt it was as good a time as any to take a few moments and to see and to look a little bit more deeply into the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we are going to take the next couple of weeks and look at this doctrine, and, and hopefully I can uh, not only clearly uh, expound the doctrine, but also uh, show where it has feet, so to speak, where it gives application to our lives. And so read with me. If you have your Bibles, please take them up and read with me in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has made him known. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, as we consider this doctrine, help it not to be dry. Help us to see the importance of the incarnation, both that God became flesh and that God became flesh. And help us to see how our salvation is rooted in the dual nature of Christ, the fully God and the fully man, the truly God and the truly man in one person. Lord, give us your spirit today to open our eyes and our ears so that we may worship you well and so that we might rest in the finished and completed work of our salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dutch theologian Herman Bovink says in his Systematic Theology, he says, Christ is not the teacher, not the founder, but the content of Christianity. And he says that within his section on the incarnation. And he goes on to say that Jesus is the central focus of the Bible. Recently, a publisher came out with the story of the redemption Bible. And I looked at the ad that I saw and I said, huh, it's the Bible. Because the Bible is the story of redemption. It is the story of God keeping His promise to Adam and Eve when He told Eve in the garden after they had fallen into sin that the seed of the woman would eventually one day crush the head of Satan while at the same time His heel being bruised. And the person who filled that promise was Jesus. And so Jesus is the center of It's the central focus of the Bible. And the incarnation is the central doctrine within that focus 
according to Bavink, that secures our salvation. And so as I said, we're going to spend the next couple weeks looking at the doctrine of the Incarnation and, and why it is the center of our salvation. But before I jump all the way in with both feet into the deep end of the Incarnation, I want us to see on what basis we study the Incarnation and on what basis we can have assurance that this is truth from God. And that is the reliability of Scripture. Because where do we get all of our doctrine within the church, whether it's the summary found in the Apostles' Creed, the summary found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, or in the four-volume work that Bavink produced, from which I took that little teeny tiny quote. Well, it comes from Scripture. We hear these words in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. These are very familiar words to each of us. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Several years ago, a book was recommended to me called The Genesis Flood. And the Genesis Flood was written back in the 50s or 60s um, and talks about the scriptural proof as well as the scientific um, geological proof for the flood of Genesis 6 through 9. So I was excited to read it. And so I opened it up, and the first chapter was on the scripture of the flood as found in chapter in Genesis chapter six through nine. And I'm reading through it. And the second chapter expounds even more of the scripture in Genesis six through nine. And then the third chapter moves on to other scriptures throughout the book, uh, throughout the Bible that talk about the flood. And at this point, brothers and sisters, I am sorry to say I was getting a little frustrated. I know all the Scripture. I've studied all the Scripture. I understand all the Scripture. Let's get to the science. Maybe there's people out there that don't know the Scripture as well as me, and they need these first few chapters. I need the science. And God, in His infinite wisdom, His infinite grace, smacked me upside the head with a two-by-four and said, Idiot, you're the one who needs the faith in the Scriptures. At that moment, I was putting more faith in the science of the flood than I was in what the Scripture revealed as God's inspired Word. I confessed my sins, I repented, and and honestly, I never finished the book. But we know that the doctrine of the Incarnation, we know that every doctrine that is taught in Bible-believing Christ-centered churches is secure because they are revealed to us in God's holy and inspired and reliable Word. These words that I am talking to you about incarnation, about God taking on flesh or becoming flesh, are going to be difficult to understand because they are linked oftentimes to God's incomprehensibility. Now, God's incomprehensibility does not mean that God cannot be known at all. If God could not be known at all, we would be desperate and without hope in our world. But the doctrine of incomprehensibility means that God cannot be known completely and fully. But because God reveals truths about Himself within the Scripture, we can trust that they are true. We can trust that they are trustworthy. And we can trust that they offer us the knowledge of God that we need in order to be saved. And at some point, brothers and sisters, you and I must cease trying to subject the scriptural truth to our sinful reason and accept what we have been given as God's truth and God's salvation. When it comes to our salvation, we are treading the depths of God's incomprehensibility. There are other things that we argue more about within theological circles. Paul Washer says that it is a, it is a shame that we argue over eschatology as much as we do because we will understand eschatology in a moment. 
We will understand the truth of the timing and the mode and the means of Christ's second coming and our glorification in a moment. We will spend the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of our salvation and the gospel message of which the incarnation is included. So we must take Scripture at its word and trust its reliability. So what is What do we mean when we say the incarnation? Sam Storms gives an excellent short-ish definition of the incarnation. And what he says here is that by the incarnation, we mean that the eternal word or second person of the Trinity became a man or assumed human flesh at a point in time, yet without ceasing to be God. Relatively simple compound sentence there that we will spend the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of to seek to understand. This was a Trinitarian work. We know it's Trinitarian because He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word, the Son. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was a Trinitarian work because the Son took on flesh at the decree of the Father and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Much like all of our salvation work, much like all of our redemption work is a Trinitarian work, the incarnation was a Trinitarian work as well. But we need to be careful when we talk about the incarnation because it was not merely God taking flesh. It was the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who took on flesh. If we merely say that it was the, that it was God who took on flesh, we are in danger of confusing the three people of the Trinity. They are one God in three separate persons. They have their own distinct work, even though it is all together within the work of the Godhead. But it is Jesus, the Son, who became flesh. Now, it is important for us also to understand that there is no fundamental change to who Jesus was. He added a human nature But his personality did not change. He did not cease to be God in the time of the incarnation. He did not become a new person or a fourth person or a third and a half person of the Trinity. He is still the second person of the Trinity with the addition of a human nature, which we will talk more about next week. We will talk about the human nature part of Jesus, of the second person of the Trinity This week, our focus will be on the divine nature, but it is important for us to remember that at no point in the incarnation or since the incarnation has Jesus ever ceased to be God, as well as he has not ceased to be human since the incarnation occurred. And so, as I said, while there's bleed over between the two, while we will look mainly at the flesh part of the statement, the word became flesh. Today, we want to look at the word who became flesh. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is important for us to understand that Jesus never lost any of his divinity in the incarnation. From the moment that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary to today, On throughout eternity, he always has been, always is, and always will be God, divine. We go too far sometimes when we say that he set aside his divinity. When we, when we look at Philippians chapter two, when we, we see that he emptied himself of Godhood or however we seek to look at and try to interpret that passage, we go way too far if we say that He set aside divinity in order to become flesh. He limited some of His attributes as God, but He never put them aside. As I said, from the moment of conception all the way up until now, He always has been, always will be, always is fully God. And we have to get this part of the doctrine right. We have to get the other part of the doctrine right as well, but we'll talk about that next week. Because the enemy, Satan, 
has attacked the doctrine of the incarnation from the founding of the church. The first ecumenical councils where all the bishops of all the churches gathered together to hammer out points of theology were centered around who was Jesus. Arius taught that Jesus was something a little less than fully God and a little more than fully human. But he wasn't truly God or truly human. He was some kind of being in between, not an angel, but not a human, not God, but not a human. Other people have attacked that he was never God, that he was only human. Other people have attacked that he was only God and never human. We have to get this right. And why does it matter that he was fully God? It matters at the cross. If he were not fully divine, he would not have been able to take the infinite punishment of God upon the sins of those who believe. He also would have stumbled and fallen at some point. We'll talk about the nature of his temptation a little bit as we look at the flesh parts of the word took on flesh. I know I'm putting a lot off and we'll be here far less than four hours next week, I promise. But his ability to live a sinless life was founded in his divinity, his being truly God, his being fully God. His ability to take God's infinite wrath against the sins of his people was based upon him being fully God, being truly God. He did retain that divinity even though he limited the uses of those attributes and lived under the full weight of his divinity. So how do we know that Jesus is God? Well, number one, the Scriptures tell us, as I mentioned before, and I want to look or at least talk about some of these Scriptures that tell us under three different headings. Number one is divine names given to Christ or to Jesus. In Revelation 1.17, we are told that Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Isaiah 44.6 ascribes that title, the first and the last, to God the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, who we know as God the Father. In Acts chapter 3.14, Peter in his speech refers to Jesus as being the Holy One of Israel. In Sunday school today, we talked about Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah's call by God to be a prophet. And he met God in all of His holiness, in all of His majesty, and it affected his ministry so much that 25 times throughout the book of Isaiah... He refers to the Lord. He refers to the covenant God of Israel as the Holy One of Israel. Jesus has given that name in Acts 3.14. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Jesus is called God with us. That will be, the angel tells Joseph, that's who Jesus will be. He will be God with us or Emmanuel. And in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10, God takes that name upon Himself where He says, I will be God with us, with you. So we know that Jesus is divine because God's names are given to Jesus. We also see divine attributes given to Jesus as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we hear these words, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We see God's omnipotence applied to the being, to the person of Jesus. In Matthew 11, 20, 11 27, Matthew talks about Jesus knowing what was in the heart of man. And so we see Jesus being given God's omniscience or having God's omniscience. Excuse me. In Ephesians 1.23, we hear echoes of Matthew 28.20 where it says that God will be with all of His people. Jesus specifically will be with all of His people. And so we see omnipresence as an attribute of Jesus. 
We read earlier from John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And we see God's eternality given to Jesus. And Hebrews 13.8 talks about Jesus being unchangeable. The immutability of God is given to us as an attribute of Jesus. He also holds divine offices. Colossians 1.16, as well as part of the passage that we read here in John 1, talks about Jesus being the creator. What are we told in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Mark 2, verse 5, he takes on the role of forgiver of sins. And how do the, how do the religious leaders react to that? Who can forgive sins but God? And 2 Timothy 4.1 reminds us that he is a judge and that he will judge all the earth. Throughout the prophets, we see that that is a role that is reserved for God. And then lastly, Jesus makes his own claims to deity. Now, I know I told you only three headings. There's actually four. Jesus' own claim to his deity. We are oftentimes told within our culture that Jesus never claimed to be God, so why should we assume that he is? Well, they missed quite a bit if they think he never claimed to be God. One of the reasons the religious leaders were seeking to kill him was because they thought he repeatedly claimed to be God. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 21, in verse 27, and in verse 33, he said, You have heard it said, and the assumption is there by the Pharisees, but I tell you this, I declare to you the law. Who declares the law to the people of God? It is God himself. He was acting as a lawgiver. But John gives us a great example of Jesus' own claim to deity in John chapter 8, verse 58. He's arguing with the religious leaders. He's telling them about something that Abraham looked forward to in seeing Jesus in his day and seeing Jesus bringing the blessing of redemption to the nations. And the religious leaders in John eight fifty seven say, you are not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, I tell you the truth, or verily, verily, before Abraham was born, I am. It's very specific in the, religion, in the original language there. He is referencing, he takes upon himself the holy name, the covenantal name that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai in the burning bush. We have plenty of scriptural truth that Jesus retained his divine nature. So what? What does it matter that Jesus is fully or truly God as well as fully or truly human? One of Satan's temptations is to take our sins, to multiply it in our minds, and to try and convince us that Jesus' work was not enough. I, I ran into many people in my time at hospice when I would talk to them. They would ask me what hope I had that I could give to them, and I would, I would tell them the gospel. And a handful of those people looked back at me in the eyes, and they said, you just don't know what I've done. There is not a thing that Jesus could do to redeem anything that I have done. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie that comes from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. Jesus is God. And because he was fully and truly God, there is nothing that you can do or anyone can do that if they were to repent of, that his grace would not cover. Because he took the infinite wrath of God for your sins. Tim Keller, oftentimes quoting Edmund Clowney, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but I'm going to do the best I can. He says that the bad news for us is, is that you are, your sins are far more depraved and heinous than you or I could ever, ever know 
or fathom. And that's true. Your sins and my sins are far more depraved and heinous than any of us could ever imagine. And deserve far more wrath from God than any of us could ever imagine. And if I left you there, you'd go home depressed. But the good news, Keller says, is this. That His grace goes far deeper and covers far more than we could ever think or imagine as well. Because His sacrifice was of infinite worth before God. And it was only of infinite worth before God because He was God. So brothers and sisters, as you struggle with sin and as Satan tempts you, take Him to the cross. Let Him see where the eternal second person of the Trinity paid for your sin. No matter how sinful you are, God's grace goes even further. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we weary of our sin. And we weary of listening to the enemy try to convince us that we are far more sinful than your grace could cover. And yet your word tells us that our sins are fully covered and more because of the infinite work, the infinite worth of our Lord and Savior's sacrifice. Help us to walk in the glory of that knowledge. Help us to walk in the peace of that knowledge. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn today comes once again from the hymn book, and it is hymn 163. Hark the herald angels sing. As the angels gathered in in those fields outside of Bethlehem, they proclaimed the Lord's birth to the shepherds. And they proclaimed that message to us as well, that a newborn king is there and peace comes through him. So let us stand and sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Hymn 163.
As you go this week, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His countenance upon you and bring you peace. We pray with the saints who have come before and who will come after. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.